Uh, you can open up your copy of the Bible, uh, if you have one, to Hebrews chapter 11. We took a one-week break uh, from Hebrews last week for Mother's Day. Pastor Larry, thank you again for preaching uh, last Sunday. Appreciate you and your service to our congregation. If you were not here, if you were maybe visiting your mom, uh, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that. Uh, it, it was wonderful, not just to think about our, our immediate family, the nuclear family, but to think about the spiritual family as well, and honoring the women who've come before us and, and thanking the Lord for them, uh, but in honoring them and the way that we live our life. Uh, but thank you, Pastor Larry, uh, for preaching that message. I wanted to share a few things before we come to this text. Uh, we don't often do announcements, but I felt like this might be a morning with a few things stacked up. It would be helpful to take a few minutes and share things with you. Uh, as always, I want to say thank you for your ongoing generosity as individuals, as couples, as families, uh, to the general fund of our church. What you give sacrificially is funding many good things uh, here locally in our community uh, and around the world. Uh, a couple of things that it is helping fund or bring about. I wanted to give you some updates on or paint some pictures looking forward uh, for you with. One, I know many of you have been praying for our brother Ben Shaw. Uh, we've been talking with for months about uh, coming on staff here. He lives in England currently. Uh, he is in nine days, Lord willing, going to touch down in Indianapolis uh, to actually start living here. He's going to take some weeks to travel and visit some American friends before he hits the ground running here. But uh, thank you for praying for him. Uh, your prayers, our prayers have been answered and the provision of him uh, to come here. He is very excited to be here and uh, to start to plant roots here of service and connection with us. So continue to pray for him and look forward to him coming. But another update I wanted to give you, uh, often when we uh, send field workers out to the nations, we don't forget that they're there, but we continue to pray for them, lift them up, but it is very sweet when they get to come home, whether for a short little stint or sometimes for a furlough or longer. So I wanted to highlight, we have a family back with us today uh, here in the middle section, uh, the Hood family, uh, Jared and Megan and their two daughters. They just touched down. Yes, let's give them a welcome round of applause back. Uh, they are planning to be here for this year, the entirety of a year. They're going to take a few weeks, uh, these next few weeks, to uh, go do some debriefing uh, with an, an agency, an organization we appreciate up in Michigan. So we'll be praying for you all for that and trust that that will be profitable to you. But uh, they've been serving in Tanzania for the last several years uh, with African Inland Mission, overseeing a TIMO team. I could explain more about what they have been doing. And we're praying with them for what the Lord may have ahead in store for them. But uh, we are very much looking forward to reconnecting with you all, caring for you. I know we will benefit from you all being here, uh, but I, I pray especially in these initial days that you'll be ministered to by us. Uh, we've prayed for you even this morning as pastors that, that the Spirit would encourage you, help you and your girls to feel welcome um, by us. But we're grateful for you and your service the last several years and, and thankful that you are home. And then the last update I wanted to give is we, th we often think as a church in terms of reaching the nations and then reaching the generations with the gospel of Christ. Summertime is a unique opportunity in the life of our church. One group that we invest in a lot, college and seminary students, many of them are gone. Uh, but as, as children take breaks from school, we do a few different things out of the norm of how we usually operate during the school year, some different opportunities to minister to the children among us in different ways. I want to share a few things about that, encourage you to even consider how you could be involved in serving as part of them. Uh, there is a, a calendar uh, that Jordan Weddle has put together of a lot of different summer activities that uh, is available at the check-in desk. 
desk if you know where that is. Uh, for uh, children over on that wing, there's uh, printed copies of those, but they're also on our church calendar on the website as well if you want to look up some of those dates. Uh, but I wanted to highlight two in particular where you could potentially even serve. Uh, one's an evening opportunity, one's a daytime opportunity. The last several years we've been doing what we call Wednesday at the park. We pick a few Wednesdays in the summer, and now that we have our nice trailhead out here, uh, we do uh, an evening. I, I forget the exact duration. It's about 90 minutes long or so, but in the evening, uh, we set up a few of these where we invite children from our church, but also from the community to come here, uh, a lesson from the scriptures, do activities together to be prayed for, to be ministered to, along with their parents. So we're going to be doing a few of those, one in June, one in July, and so if you'd be interested in potentially helping with that in the evening, there's different roles you could play. Uh, you could head to the Welcome Center and talk to uh, Jordan Weddle this morning uh, and hear ways that you could potentially serve with those. But then there's a daytime opportunity, and we've not done this before. This is going to be a first time that we're doing this. Uh, near the middle of July, July 17th through 21st, during the morning time for several hours, we're going to do what we're calling a worship expressions camp. Uh, and the Y songs have been instrumental in thinking through this and, uh, and in organizing it for us. I'm excited about it to see what it will be like and how it could care well for the children of our church. Uh, we're trying to limit it, not to the exclusion of people outside of our church, but because this is the first time we've done this, we're trying to just focus on the children of our church first. But what it's going to be is trying to invest in the younger children of our church to teach them things about worship, like music in particular, singing, even instruments, things like that, about various components and ways that they could use their mouths and even their bodies in worship of our Savior together. And so it's going to uh, run, I think, about nine to noon uh, that week, those mornings. And you don't necessarily have to be musically inclined or artistically inclined to help. I think there will be other roles that you could play. But if you'd be interested in learning more about that and how you could play a role in that, you could also head to the Welcome Center this morning and be able to talk to Michelle and Jordan. I will be there as well. You could ask questions, uh, potentially sign up to help for that as well. But uh, thank you for considering how you could be involved in that. I want to always be planting seeds in your mind. How can I invest in the, not just the children and grandchildren of my family, but of our church and even of our community? And those are two wonderful opportunities uh, that you could be involved in this summer. All right. If you have found Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to begin uh, this morning in verse 23, and we're going to go down through verse 31. Uh, I wanted to mention as we approach this text, a common phrase that you are probably familiar with, uh, if you're of any age at all, this phrase that we use in our culture of fight or flight. Do you all know this phrase, right? It's, it's a common vernacular, I think. Uh, fight or flight was a, a phrase coined by a Harvard professor named W.B. Cannon about 100 years ago. And what he was describing is something we all know experientially as human beings, uh, that when we as human beings perceive that we are under threat of something, no matter what that threat is, there's this natural instinct that we don't have to conjure up, it just happens within us, where we are tempted to fight or to flight where we're tempted to either dig in and face directly the threat that's coming to us and, and fight back, or we are tempted to turn and run, see if we can outrun the thing or if we can maneuver out of the situation or away from the person. We are tempted, not tempted, our instinct, our instincts are to fight or flight when we're under threat. And what we're going to see as we come to this text this morning, we're going to actually see as this author, if you've been with us, you've seen that he's taking us kind of through this, what people call the hall of fame of faith. Uh, he's going to show us these different examples of faith of Old Testament saints. But the people he's going to focus on today are these people who face tremendous threat 
uh, of different sorts and different types, and we'll see what those were. But they were all facing significant threat. And what we're going to see is that these people, as they face these threats, they didn't just respond with their natural instincts, the things that just was their natural intuition, but there was a supernatural faith, not just a natural instinct, but a supernatural faith that even in the face of these threats led them to self, uh, self-denial, to obedience, uh, that, that led them to responses of faith, uh, not just to instincts that welled up within them. And so if you've been with us, you know this book of Hebrews, I, I say this every week, but it's just helpful if you're dropping in with us and you don't know, uh, but it, this book of Hebrews was written by someone we don't know who the author was, but we do know some about who he was writing to. That it was written to these very, very early Christians within decades of when Jesus had ascended back into heaven, but they were Jewish Christians. They were men and women uh, who had grown up in the Jewish faith, who had grown up hearing the Old Testament scriptures, but they had started to experience opposition. They had started to experience threats even. Threats were actually starting to come against them. Things were being taken from them. These threats have started. And what they were tempted to do was that flight, right? To, to shrink back, to run away from the problem, to go back to what they perceived as safe territory of just living as Jews. Uh, that's what they were tempted to, to, to be, if they were going to be driven by natural instincts. But what the author is trying to do again and again is to point them to supernatural instincts, to supernatural faith and say, no, when that instinct wells up within you to run, you press on in faith. You press on in obedience to the God who saves you. And in this chapter, Hebrews 11, he's been giving them just example after example after example of persons and peoples, uh, individuals and groups like who pressed on in faith, uh, even through difficulty, even through disorienting times, even through unknowns. And he's already pointed them to all these Old Testament saints that was their heritage as Jews. He's pointed them to Abel, to Enoch, to Noah, to Abraham, to Sarah, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to Joseph. Right? And in this, what we're going to read today, these couple paragraphs, he's going to really zero in on this section of Jewish history, a pretty narrow section of it, but an important one, that happened right around the Exodus uh, with Moses and even Moses' parents and then the generation that finally under the leadership of Joshua went into the promised land. Uh, and we're going to see him point to the examples of faith uh, from those stories. People who, men and women who had supernatural faith in God that overpowered their natural instincts to run. And interestingly, we're going to see, uh, using those words fight and flight, uh, we're going to see both of those in these stories. There was a flight from Egypt, this leaving from the rule of Pharaoh, this flight away from slavery in Egypt. But then when they got to the land and to Jericho, there was a fight that had to take place, a fight, if you know the story, uh, that had to take place for them to live in that land. And so we're going to see examples of faith in these stories as uh, as they had flight from Egypt and as they had a fight for Jericho. So I want to read these for us, and then we'll briefly walk through them, kind of make sure we know what these stories even are, and then we'll see what relevance they have for us today as people who live in a different time and a different place but have much in common uh, with the recipients of this letter. So this unknown author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, continued his letter this way, starting Hebrews eleven twenty three. Also, kids, listen. Listen, see if you can count how many times you hear me say, by faith. There's going to be a bunch of them. So you'll, you'll need two hands even to count them. So see, I'll, I'll quiz you later. See if you count them correctly. All right, 11, 23. By faith, 
Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the preaching of his word. I want to summarize this text and and my message to us from it this way with a simple message that we've heard in Hebrews other times. We'll hear again, um, but it's always good to hear it anew and fresh each Lord's Day, something like this would be that you can face threats with courage in the present when you trust God for reward in the future. That you can face threats with courage in the present when you trust God for reward in the future. And so I want to, before we jump to application for us, I want to make sure we actually understand what these stories were, what was happening, what this author was referring back to. Because when they would have read this, they would have had all this information and backstory in their heads and hearts. Some of them may be lost on us, but I want to try to capture some of that and, and walk back through each of these stories. And in each of them, I want to very briefly make sure we see what the threat was that they were facing, or sometimes there was multiple threats in the situation. But then to see the acts of courage uh, that they had in the face of those threats. And then we'll see why, what drove those acts of faith. So did you all count how many times I said by faith? Seven, yes. Okay. If you said seven, you were correct. So there's seven stories I need to briefly go through. uh, So I'll do my best to be concise. So uh, we'll go with these one by one. uh, Make sure we try to get what this author was getting at. So the first act by faith that we see was actually by Moses' parents long ago. Uh, So the first by faith would be that by faith Moses' parents hid him. Uh, And these first several stories are all going to involve that flight from Egypt, that that leaving from Egypt that God uh, brought about in the time of the Exodus. But the first by faith in verse 23 was actually Moses' parents having an act of faith, an amazing act of faith in my opinion. When we left off verse 22 a couple weeks ago, we had this example of Joseph, where they were at that point in their history, uh, was actually at a fairly decent spot. God had miraculously provided for them to be able to leave Canaan, where they were supposed to be living, but to, in a time of famine to be able to go to Egypt and be able to be cared for there. And they had the favor of the Egyptian king at that point, the Pharaoh. But 400 years elapsed before Moses and his generation came up. And over those four centuries, things deteriorated rapidly. The nation had grown, but this Pharaoh had arisen who hated the, the Israelite people, who had enslaved them, was making them make bricks, all these sorts of things. Uh, you know some of that story, uh, most of you. 
Uh, but the threat that was taking place in the days of Moses' parents when he was first born was this. And this is an awful threat. I cannot even fathom. It talks about the king's edict here. Uh, that We could read that and just rush right by that. What that king's edict was, if you go back and read Exodus chapter 1, the king of Egypt at that time had commanded the midwives who had helped give birth to these Israelite children, he had commanded them that whenever an Israelite boy was born, a son was born, that they were to take that newborn and throw it in the Nile River to die. Like that was what the king's edict was for this, this, these people to do with Israelite newborn boys. And so Moses is a newborn Israelite boy, and his parents know that that's the edict of the king, that if he or his, his authorities are aware of this son being born to them, that this son is going to be thrown into the river to die. And we don't know exactly what this means, but they see something in the child. They see, this author records it, it's back in Exodus 2, that they saw that he was beautiful, that there was something about his appearance. I don't know what that means, but there was something about his appearance that seemed to indicate to them that God was going to do something unique through this child, that God was going to do something maybe to eventually give deliverance to his people through this child. And they were anticipating something great. I think, coming through this son. And that gave them, if they didn't need it enough, just as parents, that gave them encouragement, that gave them uh, courage to actually hide this child. They did that for three months. And his mom nursed him. But then the act of courage, the greatest act of courage, if you go back to that story, wasn't so much that they hid him. I think that's what most parents would try to do, right? But if you go back and read that story, they made a basket. They put him in that basket and then they put him amongst the reeds where I think they knew the daughter of that king was going to come and bathe. Can you imagine, like as that mom or dad, putting that baby in that basket, placing it in those reeds, and then letting go of that basket and walking away to watch what would happen? Can you imagine that? Like the courage that that would take, the confidence that would take of what God would do. You are quite literally hands off at that point. But this text tells us they were not, the end of verse 23, they were not afraid of the king's edict. Like this is the most powerful man they know of in the world at that time. They are not afraid of his edict even to kill their very own son, their newborn son. And they trusted God enough to place him in that basket and put him amongst those reeds to be found by Pharaoh's daughter, and in God's kindness, Pharaoh's daughter showed mercy. And she actually returned him through an ironic series of events to his birth mom to be cared for and, and nursed and grown. But eventually he did go and he lived in the house of Pharaoh as the son of that princess. So he started growing up in the household of Pharaoh. And that leads us to the second act of faith. The second by faith is in verse 24. And if the first one was that by faith Moses' parents hid him, Verses 24 through 26 show us this act where by faith Moses identified with the Israelites, with the Hebrew people. Like by faith he made a choice to identify with them rather than to continue to identify with the Egyptians. So you see that in verse 24 through 26. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God. Right? So he, he chose as an adult to identify with the people of God. 
Though he was raised in Pharaoh's household, though he would have had almost anything probably at his disposal, would have had uh, people uh, just fawning over him, serving him as royal, part of the royal family, as he grew up, he knew his fellow Israelites were in slavery. Like he had, and he had compassion upon them. His heart was breaking for them, even as he lived in luxury. And what happened, and some of you know this story, you go back and read in the early chapters of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, I believe, he sees, as a grown man, he sees a fellow Israelite struck down and killed by an Egyptian. And I think that is the incident that this author is referring to here, where Moses makes a choice at that moment. Say, am I going to, as an Egyptian, just look at that and let it happen? Or am I going to, as an Israelite, seek to do something about it? Who am I going to identify here? The ones who are able to strike down and have all that we want? Or am I going to identify with the people who are suffering? God's people. Who am I going to identify with? And what he decides in that moment is to identify with the Israelites. And he actually goes and strikes down the one who has struck down the Israelite. He, he kills him. And he, he makes this choice. It, and that would have been such a great risk to him. I uh, think what, what will happen when Pharaoh finds out? What will happen when this princess who has raised him finds out when, that he has done this? He was choosing in an act of faith to identify with God's people, to stake his identity with them and not with those who would flatter him and provide all that he wanted in this life. He chooses to identify with the people of God rather than the pleasures and the treasures that the the Pharaoh's household would offer him. Uh, He chooses mistreatment with the people of God. And we'll see why he did that in a bit, but that would have taken a tremendous act of faith and courage to do that in that moment. Verse 27, we see the next instance of by faith, right? So by faith, the author points the readers back and says, By faith, Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. There's two times Moses leaves, Moses leaves Egypt. One is right after he kills that guy. Uh, he actually flees and, and goes away for 40 years. I think this is actually talking about the second time he flees Egypt. Uh, so 40 years later when he's about 80 is when he finally returns to Egypt through a series of events. And he starts to lead this exodus. When he starts to not only he himself leave Egypt, but he's going to take thousands and thousands of Israelites with him. And he, he, by faith, leaves Egypt. So he returns as a deliverer. And if you know this story, you know what tremendous courage this would have taken for Moses, this guy who had fled four decades earlier, to come back and go to this Pharaoh, this all-powerful man, and tell him that God says, let my people go. And to tell him again and again, if you don't, Plague number one is coming to you and your people. If you don't, plague number two is coming to your people. And three and four and all the way up through ten, which we'll see about in just a minute. But this would have taken tremendous courage. Moses was like the lightning rod, right? Willfully having to choose, say, I'm going to be the one to go before this guy and tell him to let us go. Tell him to let us leave. Tell him to set us free. But I love this that the author says, just like his parents weren't afraid of the king's edict, the author says here in verse 27 that Moses is not afraid of the king's anger. Like he didn't know how how Pharaoh would respond per se, right? Uh, He had left 40 years earlier, I think in some ways out of fear 
But he comes back with courage and confidence to confront him, and he is not afraid of the king's anger. And so by faith, he, he leads the Israelites out of Egypt. But part of him leading them out is what is talked about in verse 28. This fourth instance of by faith. Uh, by faith, verse 28 tells us, by faith Moses kept the Passover. And it's not as if Moses just did that up by himself. The whole nation did it. But he singularly points to Moses, this keeping of the Passover. And the threat here in this situation, this threat is unique amongst all these situations we're looking at today. Because the threat here in this situation was not from a fellow human. Right? The threat in this situation, he says, is from this being, an angelic being called the destroyer, the destroyer of the firstborn. And if you know this story, you know that as those plagues stacked up, God's judgment upon the Egypt, of Pharaoh and the Egyptians by extension, the very last one, the tenth one, was this plague of the death of the firstborn that we know as the Passover God was bringing this final, most awful plague upon the Egyptians. And in reality, it would have fallen on the Israelites as well if they did not do what God told them to do. But there was going to be this destroyer, this angelic being who would come across the whole land on this one particular evening and strike down the firstborn of humans and animals alike that he would strike down the firstborn in this horrible act of judgment. But God gave his people through Moses a command to follow in faith of how they could have that angel pass over them, how they could be released from that judgment and that death. And he told them to offer these lambs, these year-old unblemished lambs, to offer them as sacrifice and to take the blood of those lambs and to, to place them on the sides and on the top of their doorways of their homes. And if they did that, in faith, by faith, that angel would pass over them. They would be spared from the death of the firstborn. And that is precisely what happened. It was by faith that Moses did that. By faith, uh, these people did that act. That would have seemed probably strange and foreign to them, that they had never had a Passover before. They knew these plagues were starting to happen, but how could killing a lamb and and putting its blood on our door, how could that actually spare us? And is that destroyer even going to actually come? Like they would have had to have much confidence in the word of God and the command of God. And even to think about this, as poor enslaved people, to offer up countless lambs, valuable, pure lambs, that would have taken great faith to do as an enslaved people they were showing trust but they were taking risk because that night God had also told them to get ready to leave the next day Uh, in a sense pack up and be ready to go they would have looked like absolute fools uh, if they would have not had this take place but it did and God sent that destroyer and the firstborns were struck down even to the household of Pharaoh but not in the households of the Israelites because they operated in faith. So they survived this threat from the destroyer of the firstborn. The the fifth incident is verse 29. It says, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea. This is the last part of this flight from Egypt, this this exodus uh, that is led by Moses. And now he's talking about the whole nation and the parting of the Red Sea, the walking across on dry land is what he's referring to here, Right? And the threat here in this story that he's pointing would have been twofold. I don't know how much you've read or contemplated on that story as they came up to the, the edge of the Red Sea, but the threat would have been twofold that they were facing. One would have been the armies of Pharaoh. 
He had in, in almost like uh, frustration said, fine, you, know, you all can go. Like as this final plague was coming upon them, he, he released them, he sent them out, but then he changes his mind and he sends his chariots. He sends his warriors to come after this nation that is, is not used to fighting, has no real ability to defend themselves. So the first threat would have been Pharaoh's army that's coming after them, right? The second threat is the, the water itself. I don't know if you've thought about this before. It would have been amazing to see those waters part as they were pressed up to the edge of that sea and God miraculously parts those waters. It's not as if those waters just disappeared, right? They were piled up. And these people have to start to step into the bottom of that sea. Into, like, what faith and courage that would have taken, Right? To, to see these waters, I doubt it was just this calm, serene time. There's an army coming after them, and there's waters on either side of them, and they have little ones with them, and they have animals with them, and they have to walk out onto the bottom of the sea, trusting that God would keep those waters there, trusting that God would not have them wash over them like he was about to with the soldiers. He had the power to do that, right? He washed them back over the soldiers that came after them, but they had faith as they were fleeing this army. They had faith to trust God that he's going to keep these waters at bay, and he's going to take us through to the other side. But taking those steps took deep faith, deep confidence that God would rescue them. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea. And then these last two examples of faith are more the fight. If those first five were the flight out of Egypt, these last couple acts of faith have to do with the fight that would happen 40 years later for Jericho. As they finally, after years of wandering, which we read about in Deuteronomy last school year, uh, they finally are ready to go into that promised land that God had promised Abraham long ago. In verse 30, uh, this sixth example of faith says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down. Uh, uh, when they were encircled for seven days by those Israelites. If you know this story, this is a a wild story, but a true story. Uh, The threat in that instance was the strength and solidity of the city of Jericho. Like as they finally came into that, that promised land, they crossed the Jordan River to go into that promised land. Jericho would have loomed there as a strong, powerful city right? That, that if they were going to go into this land, they had to somehow be delivered from these people. And these were not fighting types of people, right? Like they had been in the wilderness for four decades. They, they weren't like seasoned veterans of battle. They didn't have, ability, they didn't have things that could scale walls and to, to go up over the walls of Jericho. They didn't have artillery to shoot over at them. They, all they had was a command from God to walk around the city for seven days and then to blow horns and yell. Like, that's what God said to do. Like, that, and they would have probably looked so foolish to the people. There, there was fear in the city of Jericho. You read the story, there was. But they also probably started, I think, maybe by the seventh day to think, these people, what are they doing? <laughs> like, uh, like they, I think the fear would have maybe dissipated as they got to day seven. But by faith, when that seventh day came, you know what they did? They blew the horns and they yelled. And God made the walls come down. It was a fight, but God did it. And then he 
It's a horrible scene in some ways, this conquering of Jericho, but it's God giving them deliverance from a real threat, from the, the, the enemies, the, the strength and the solidity of that city of Jericho and the enemies of God within it. God gave them victory, and they did it by faith. But within that city, there was a person, the last example of faith, there was a, a woman named Rahab, if you read the story leading up to them finally coming and encircling that city, there were spies that had been sent in into the city, and they had met Rahab. They had even gone into her home, probably the, one of the few places they could be without being seen and noted initially. Uh, but they had uh, gone into this home. But th- what verse 31 says is that by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Much is packed into that story, but what happened was this. There, were, there was a, a twofold threat with Rahab. The first one was when those spies had first come into the city. Uh, there was this threat of, what do I do now? <laughs> like, the, these two guys have come. Uh, they've told me who they are. I know who they are. If I hide them, which is what she did, she gave them a friendly welcome. If I hide them, that is treason, Right? Like, if people find this out, probably I will be killed, my family will be killed. There was a threat even of her fellow citizens of Jericho, right? But then the even greater act of faith would have been she knew these people were about to come and encircle the city and yell and that, that God was going to destroy the city, that the walls were going to tumble down. But she had to have faith, if you remember the story, to tie the scarlet thread outside of her window of the wall and to have faith that when all that walls, those walls come tumbling down, that this part will not. Like this part that I'm in, God will somehow in his providence leave this standing upright. That, that myself and my family will be spared. Those were the threats. Uh, the, the threat of judgment that would come from treason and the threat that that wall may just all accidentally uh, come down on her even. But she gave these brothers a friendly welcome. She protected them. She let them be able to escape and go back to the Israelites uh, to give a report. She gave them a friendly welcome. And she trusted, even as a citizen of Jericho, she trusted the God of the Israelites enough to in faith hide those spies and in faith tie that red scarlet uh, strand outside of her window and God protected her. God delivered her from judgment, right? So by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, all these threats were faced of different sorts, mostly from humans, but even from an angel, even from the judgment of God. But why, what compelled these? And this will be briefer, but what compelled them to have these acts of courage? What, what compelled them to trust God in the midst and in the face of these threats? Was it just like a personality trait within these people that they're like risk takers? Like that they're willing to kind of roll the dice and to, to try hard things? No, like we are told on two different occasions, at least for Moses, and I think he embodies all of God's people, we're told what motivated this courage, what motivated this willingness to face threats. And I want to point out real briefly two places you see in this text what compelled this courage, what compelled this trust in God. If you look at verse 26, and both of these are going to be about Moses himself. But verse 26, we see that Moses was motivated by this future reward It says that he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, 
for? What's the reason? Like, why was he able to do that? To identify with the people of God, knowing there was going to be suffering that came with it. The end of verse 26 says, for he was looking to the reward. This is a common theme throughout Hebrews. What are people looking to? Where, where are their eyes of faith, the eyes of their soul set? For Moses, the author says, he was looking to the reward. He was looking to a future reward that was even beyond this life, that was beyond just the material things that could be gained or, or grasped onto in this life, right? Reward has been a, a theme throughout uh, this chapter. Even back in verse 6, it talked about the nature of faith is believing that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's a part of faith. It's having trust and confidence that if I come to God on his terms, there is blessing that will come at the end. There is favor that will come on the last day and into eternity. That is a core, essential part of faith. So when Moses had all these pleasures of Egypt and treasures that were his, at his disposable, uh, what he was able to do, he wasn't just calculating the odds, I think, in his head like a politician of thinking, okay, it, I'm kind of like second in command here, maybe fifth in command or something. If I go inside with the Hebrew people, I could be like the top dog and I could have all this attention. I could, that was not remotely in his mind, right? He, it's not as if he was just calculating. He wasn't just looking at this life and the scene around here in this situation. If, he, if all he was doing was looking at the world as he saw it, there's, he would have stayed put, right? In the house of Pharaoh. He had everything he could ever want, but he knew there was something beyond death Right? He knew that there was some reward that he longed for and that he needed even beyond this life. And he knew that the only way to find it, the only way to be granted that was not to bend the knee to Pharaoh, but to God himself. And say, I'm going to identify with him. I'm going to identify with his people because I am confident Pharaoh can take this money. Like He can take this praise. I don't need that. But what I do need is glory in the future for all eternity. And I can find that God has promised that to his people. So he was looking to the reward of eternity and of the supernatural, right? Uh, not just to the reward that would come in this life. But the, the other indicator you see of what was motivating him is in verse 27. It says, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. There's this idea again of what does he see? What does he look at? Where are the eyes of his soul looking? And he was not, in the eye, the depths of who he was, was not looking at Pharaoh, right? The, the supreme ruler on earth. What he was looking to, he, he was looking to was the invisible God. I, I don't think he's saying that, that Moses physically saw God. He had this experience at the burning bush uh, in Exodus 3, yes. But I don't think he's trying to say like all the time God was seeing some, or Moses was seeing some physical manifestation of God. He's saying he was invisible, right? But he sees him with the eyes of his heart. He sees him with the eyes of his soul. He knows God is more real than Pharaoh. God is stronger than Pharaoh. God is more sovereign than Pharaoh. And his eyes were set upon that king, that ruler, the creator of all things. That's who he was looking to, right? He endured as seeing him who is invisible. There's one commentator who said this. I appreciate the conciseness of it. He said that Moses feared Pharaoh so little because he feared God so much. Like he, he knew there was a God who ruled over the kings, that there was a king of kings, a lord of lords. And he feared him. He wanted to honor him. And he believed that the promises God had made to Abraham, 
of a homeland that wasn't Egypt. He believed God would provide it, right? And he believed, I think, even beyond that, that there was a homeland even beyond Canaan that all of God's people would go to, and he wanted to be there. He longed for that reward. And so he was willing to trust God in the face of threat. And I think that what was true of Moses was true for all of these people we've seen, for his parents, for uh, the, the nation of Israel as they kept the Passover and went across the Red Sea, and for Rahab, all of these people, they, they trusted God. They were looking to the unseen, and they were trusting that reward would come, that future reward would come. But one thing I want to be clear on, and I'll give a, a few words of application. We must be clear as we talk about reward of God that we don't become confused to think that this reward is something that Moses earned for himself or that the Israelites earned for themselves. They longed for it. They desired this reward. But often when we think of reward, we think of, well, I did this. And because I did this, I earned this from you. Like a reward, a year-end reward. I did this. I get this, Right? That is not the type of reward he's talking about here where you do something and you are now found to be approvable. You're now found to be worthy of getting a reward. The Israelites, Moses, Rahab, none of them deserved God's reward. None of them deserved it just by obeying him, right? None of us deserve God's reward just for obeying him. These threats, several of them, if you pay attention, these threats were looming over them just like they were looming over the Egyptians, right? Just like they were looming over, the, it was looming over Rahab just as it was looming over the citizens of Jericho collectively. There is no innocent people here. It's not as if they were guilty and now they trust and obey God and now they are worthy in and of themselves for a reward. That is not what is going on here. Like they needed, they desired this reward, they longed for it, but it could not be earned by them. They, it, had, it had to be granted to them and earned by someone else, right? These people were sinners, just like us. They deserved not God's blessing and favor. They deserved judgment. They deserved condemnation. This Passover story that is mentioned here is a supreme example of this. That there was, It's a, like a small picture for them of, horrible, awful picture, but of what the final judgment should be like. That the destroyer, who at the final judgment is going to be Jesus himself, someday is going to come and destroy all of his enemies. Not just the firstborn, all of his enemies. And that's what we deserve. That's what should be coming to us, but for the Passover lamb. Right? That was, was killed in the place of these people, whose blood was shed in the place of these people. Like, and the, ultimately, God couldn't just shield Moses from final judgment. He couldn't just shield Rahab from final judgment. He could shield them from Pharaoh. He could shield them from the, the armies even of Israel as they came to destroy Jericho. Right? He could shield Rahab from them. But God cannot, apart from the blood of Christ, shield us from himself. Right? We have wronged him. like We have defied him. We have mocked him. We have run away from him. And we deserve his judgment. And the only way that we can receive reward is not by turning over a new leaf, but not by starting to become moral and starting to take God seriously. The only way that we could actually be rewarded by God is if there is someone who suffers in our place, someone who takes our sin and our guilt and God deals with it with them in place of us. 
And that is exactly what Jesus did. I love that in this text it even talks about the Christ, right? In verse 26, they had known from the beginning that there was this Messiah, this Savior that needed to come someday. And it wasn't Moses, right? Moses knew that there was a Christ to come, that there was one who would have to bear reproach, one who would have to be judged, not just with God's people, but for God's people. Not just join them in their suffering here, but suffer at the hand of God the Father for their sins. And that is what Jesus did. Paul even called Jesus in 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul called Jesus our Passover lamb, right? Like that he is the one when he went to the cross, it's God the Son, the innocent Son, who did deserve reward, took our sin upon himself and was condemned, was judged, was slain by God the Father in our place so that if we come under his blood, that we can be forgiven, that we can be freed, And not only that was he put to death as the Passover lamb, but God did something with him that he did not do with these lambs, right? He raised him back up from the dead and rewarded him with a reward you cannot even fathom, right? Like he made him the head of a new creation and he gave him millions, if not billions of people who would come and follow after him and become his brothers and sisters because of the suffering that he had. He was raised to new life and he was given this reward that he is willing to share with us. He earned the reward. You do not. I do not. We are called to repent. We, are, we must repent and turn from our sin and trust in Christ, but that act doesn't now all of a sudden make you good and worthy It connects you with Jesus who is good and worthy and who is rewarded by God and he shares it with you. And so may today be, if if this day that is referred to of Moses was this day he chose to identify with the people of God and the Messiah of God, my prayer has been today that this would be a day for some of you in this room that this is the day you identify with Christ, that you are united with Christ, that you come under his blood and know now and into eternity the reward of God. Not that's earned by you, but that's granted to you by the life and the sacrifice of Christ. So all of this builds up to this present courage. As these people look to future reward, they live with present courage. And we can as well. I want to give a couple quick words of application. Their world was different from ours. The recipients of this letter, their world was different from ours. They were actually facing real intense threat for their faith. They, they were being mistreated. They were having things taken from them. They were being publicly mocked. Uh, they were, there was lots of trial and weighty things, threats that were coming to them. Often for us, I think if we're honest, most threats that we face for our faith are more theoretical. There are some that are starting to develop for sure. But they're more theoretical for us and more real for them in that day. But I think there's a few things that we can learn from their example and what's being taught to them here. And I'll just say them briefly. The first one is as we look to that future reward as the people of God, is that we need to have courage, number one, to relinquish the pleasures and treasures of this life. Like we must have a willingness to let go of those things, to not hold fast to them. My guess would be, I I am not a prophet, I don't know the future, but my guess would be as the future would progress if Christ stays in heaven and our culture continues to be as it is, my guess would be that before our lives are threatened, our reputations will be, right? Our, our jobs will be taken before our lives are taken. Our, our prestige, our clout, our privileges that we sometimes have as Christians right now, that those things will start to be taken before we are thrown in jail, before harm comes to us. We'll be marginalized before we're hurt physically, right? 
And if those things start to happen, our ability to have the pleasures and treasures of this world are going to decrease. Like we're not going to be able to have the type of lives that we enjoy now. And what must be true of us, and I want us to try to be prepared for this, if, if we feel those things start to slip away from us, the pleasures and the treasures and the comforts and the eases that we have in this life, we must not compromise on our faith in God to retain those things. To say, well, I want those and I'm not willing to let go of those. So I'll kind of I'll uh, say what I need to say and do what I need to do to accommodate. That must not be the type of people we are. The pleasures and treasures of this world are nothing compared to the pleasures and treasures of God himself and of the glory to come. And when we start to feel those things go away, we must not compromise in order to retain them. Jesus himself said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Like, what will it profit him? It will not, is the implied answer. It will bring judgment upon us. And I just want to encourage us, as we think, we're so tempted to think of the pleasures and treasures of this world, to contemplate, especially as you get older, contemplate eternity more than you contemplate retirement, right? Contemplate heaven more than you do being in some vacation spot at the end of your life, right? Contemplate what is on the other side of death and what's on the few years or decades that lead up to it, right? And that will be what helps us. If we remember the reward to come will be what helps us to resist this temptation to just grab and hold on to all the pleasures and treasures of this life that I can get. Because I promise you, heaven is better and the new earth is better. And when we face pressure to have those things removed, we must remember what is fleeting and what's lasting, right? What is fleeting and what's lasting. So have courage to relinquish pleasures and treasures. And the second application would be this. If things progress as I imagine they could in decades ahead, we may be in the same boat as some of these brothers and sisters. Or we have to have a courage to actually endure opposition and sincere, serious threat. Like we must be a people who have courage to endure opposition. It would not surprise me if maybe by the time that I would die, if I have a normal uh, length of life, that some of that opposition has intensified or, or grown, where there actually is threat that starts to come. Maybe not of death, but uh, of real harm or consequence. But the gospel of Jesus is not just to prepare us for final judgment. It's also to prepare us for any threat and opposition that will come in this life as well. It must be. If it doesn't prepare us for those, I don't know what gospel we're believing. Like we, What we believe about the eternal future affects how we live and what we're willing to endure now. And if we're not willing to endure opposition now, I question if we actually believe that that's to come. Like We must be willing to do this. And I don't want us to borrow trouble from the future. I don't want us to overly obsess and worry about what the future may entail. It may be different from how I imagine it or how you imagine it. But what we can do to prepare for that, if it were to come, is to do what Moses did, is to consider, right? To contemplate on the future glory that awaits us. That is the only thing that's going to prepare us for that. It's not going to be to think, how can we scheme and how can we retain our political rights and our economic uh, gains? It's to think and contemplate on what will be on the other side of death and what will be at the return of Jesus. As we consider that and contemplate that, that is what will prepare us for suffering here. There's a pastor, Tim Keller, who many of you know, 
Uh, he passed away a few days ago. Uh, I love that brother and, and learned much from him from afar. I wanted to incorporate at least one quote uh, from him this morning. Uh, in this vein, he wrote this one time. And this is important to know in our hearts and even to teach our kids. He said, trouble can take anything away from you except God. Therefore, if God, is, if God is to you a greater safety, a deeper security, and a more powerful hope than anything else in the world, you fear no trouble. May that be true of us, that, that we don't fear trouble because we know our future. We know the glory to come, and we are able to endure opposition even here. I want to end by very briefly mentioning the story of uh, Jim Elliott. I don't know if I've told this story before. Some of you know this story. Uh, but I read a biography of him when I was in college uh, that was deeply impactful to me. He was a missionary um, back in the 1950s, uh, and he was convinced as a very young man of the future reward for God's people, uh, of glory to come. And he was willing to risk his life. He was willing to face threats that I think many of us may be uh, nervous to go to, to take the good news of Jesus to the jungles of Ecuador and to a tribe there that was known to be savage, known to be cannibals even, and to, to murder people of other tribes. Uh, but he and several others went to Ecuador, uh, to this tribe known for its brutality, and they started to make very carefully, trying to be as wise as they could to make contact with them. Uh, and they even felt like there was some progress being made, that there was some, uh, some kind gestures back in return that kind of surprised them. But one day, surprisingly to them, as they came back to engage with them, uh, several tribesmen came. We don't know exactly what happened, but they struck down Jim Elliott and all his teammates that were there on the ground, ran them through with spears. And those brothers, they had guns with them. And they chose to not use them to fight back because they had said this. They had agreed in advance. They had said the natives aren't ready for heaven, but we are. Like, they aren't ready for heaven, but we are. And Jim Elliott, this was the quote I heard from him. Some of you know this, but when I first read this, I thought, man, may this be true of my heart. He had written this in his journal before, the, before ever even going down there. He had written this. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Like he was willing to put his life at, on the line, to be struck down and to not strike back because he was so sure of the resurrection. He was so sure of the glory to come that he was willing to face any threat that would come. And he did it because he had a heart for those tribes people to know that same Savior, to know that same hope of glory. And so as we face threat in our life, may we not just resort to what comes naturally to us, to fight or flight, but may we be compelled by what is supernatural within us, by the faith and the confidence that God has sent Christ, that God has raised Christ, and that someday he will draw us to be with him forever. Amen. That is what will give us resolve to face any threat that comes our way.